Hey everybody, and welcome to the Health Tech Vision Podcast, bringing you the top health tech news stories and analysis every week. I'm Hugh, and with me today, I have Holly and Indy from the SOMEX team, and we're delighted to be joined by Dr. Hugh Harvey, Managing Director of Hardian Health, a consultancy focusing on all things health tech. Holly, Indy, Hugh, how have your weeks been? Fantastic, and yeah, thanks for having me back on the podcast, guys. Well, really glad to have you back. Yeah, brilliant. Thank you, Hugh. Started off with a nice bank holiday Monday, so it's been a bit of a shorter week, but it's been good. Holly? Yeah, yeah, it's been a very good week. Thanks, Hugh. Can everyone stop saying thanks, Hugh, because there's two of us on this <laughs> Or just say it twice. Thanks, Hugh. So we'll get past the obvious confusion here of having two Hughes on this podcast today, but for regular listeners who know you well, anyone else. Could you say a few words about who you are, what you do? Sure. So I am Dr. Hugh Harvey, spelled H-U-G-H, which is the correct spelling, uh, Hugh. Um, I I run a consultancy called Hygiene Health. Um, I used to be a a radiologist uh, in the NHS. I then worked at Babylon Health for a bit. I did an MD research degree um, in in advanced imaging techniques. Uh, And then I worked at Chiron Medical, which is another AI um, startup company. And that's that Apardian. So we help uh, health tech companies get to market through regulatory, intellectual property, go to market and health economic strategy. Fantastic. Thanks, you. And it's probably no surprise that we've got you on to discuss today's stories, uh, not least in that we're, we're, we're less than 12 hours, I think, after the big news uh, coming from Babylon. So we'll start, we'll start that with our first story. Uh, it's from TechCrunch. And it's a big one. The fall of Babylon, failed telehealth startup once valued at $2 billion goes bankrupt and is sold for parts. So this feels like possibly one of the most protracted stories in health tech. Um, uh, but I think this one comes with possibly a sense of finality um, at this at this stage. We've been in dribs. This has been coming out in dribs and drabs for months, much lauded as a health tech success story. One of the big health tech unicorns of its time. Went public during the pandemic, but within a year, its shares fell 98% in value. The company famously withdrew from its NHS contracts in the UK, with founder Ali Parsa saying they were losing money for every patient. After a string of bad news, the company was taken private by Albacore Capital recently, and a merger with digital therapeutics company MindMaze was mooted, which ultimately fell through, leaving the company's future in doubt. Last month, we saw the company shutter its US operation and put its UK business up for sale, now it's been bought by US company eMed, while its GP at hand service was not sold and remains in the hands of three partners. You can find out who they are in the article. So Hugh, um, as you've already mentioned, uh, your fantastic resume includes stints at Babylon. So we're really keen to get your perspective on this. What does it mean? What's next? We can get onto this one in a bit. Was it inevitable? Ah, well, <laughs> I've, I've known this has been coming uh, pretty much since the day I left. And it has caused significant controversy as a health tech company, um, especially in the UK, um, for pretty much the entire time it's been in existence. Um, I'm not here to disparage the entire company and the entire business. Many goodwilled intelligent people have worked there and tried to make a difference. That's that's undeniable. And in fact, parts of the business did work. The uh, GPA hand service was actually quite well liked by patients who wanted telemedicine and to get a quick you know, opinion from, from a general practitioner. And their more charitable side of doing work in Africa, in Rwanda, 
even though it was a little bit of a money sink, really was quite a well-natured attempt to try and bring technology to to uh, the upcoming uh, economy. So there were parts of the business which did actually work and provide a service, but they had downsides. They were detrimental to the NHS practices, which they replaced. Um, and in, in the end, they weren't cost-effective um, to run. But I think the big element we have to consider here is is the hype around the artificial intelligence, inverted commas, of the platform. And Babylon are quite infamous for making quite a lot of noise in this space over the past decade, culminating in a rather controversial appearance at the Royal College of Physicians, where they attempted to claim that the chatbot that they had developed was passing medical exams and therefore you know, it was perfectly safe and effective. And it's interesting to note, um, I'm going to be careful here, I can only state facts rather than opinion, but fact, the Royal College has distanced themselves from Babylon since then. And in fact, any mention of that online event has have been removed from the internet by Babylon themselves. So clearly that event was not quite the moment or turning point that they were hoping for. I think there are some inaccuracies in the TechCrunch article as well. It says valued at $2 billion. I, I believe they IPO'd at $4.2 billion, which is just wow. an incredible overvaluation of, of what the business did. And the share price has not dropped 98%. It's now dropped 100% because it's no longer in existence. Uh, I think their capital value is now $5,000. So, yeah, not worth too much uh, based on, on their previous apparent successes. But I spent a year at Babylon. Um, it was my first job in industry after leaving medicine. As an outsider at the time, I'd done a degree which had involved some machine learning. And this was just before all the AI hype really kicked off. This was early, early days. And I saw an opportunity that AI could help in medicine. So I was looking for companies that were actually trying to make a difference. And on the face of it, as an outsider, Babylon looked like it was doing all the right things. They, they had an app. They were hiring data scientists. They were attempting to, to, to do something with artificial intelligence that I thought at the time had a good goal um, in order to democratize healthcare. But I quickly became disillusioned when I started. I remember my very first day, I was shown the back end of the uh, app or the AI part of the app. And it was just a bunch of Excel spreadsheets with some clinical decision pathways. And these had been written by a bunch of junior doctors employed by the company. They had attempted to validate them and stress test them to the best that they could. And they would work, you know, occasionally for for, for certain sort of straightforward queries, but they certainly weren't sort of robust. And what it certainly wasn't at that time was artificial intelligence. And I remember feeling quite disillusioned. I thought, I've just come from academia, where we've been actually doing proper data science and proper AI. And now I'm here with an Excel spreadsheet. And... Um, it felt that something felt a bit off. But the company started work on what was known as a probabilistic graph model, or a PGM, as it's known, which is a, I'm not going to go into the details of it, but essentially you, you draw a graph in theoretical space between diseases and their symptoms and their signs. And you try and connect all these diseases, symptoms, and signs with probabilities. So, for instance, you know, someone the probability of someone with central crossing chest pain having a heart attack is fairly high. And as clinicians, uh, we were helping the data science team try and figure out what these 
probabilities were. We, we had access to medical journals. We would do lots of literature review. We would try and figure out what the percentages and the probabilities were between these connections. But the model became so big and so large and so overly complex that we started having to link probabilities that just made no sense. And the, the model worked to, a, to an extent if things were really obviously connected, but where things were dubiously connected or were outliers, it sort of fell apart a little bit. And we worked very hard trying to make this work. This was all experimental. No one knew for sure if it was 100% going to work. But while we were doing this, it was being sold externally through several PR events and, and online hype and sold to investors as being the next cutting edge thing, as if it was already predetermined to work, as if it was already proven. And this sort of went on even after I left, and the claims became more and more exaggerated and more and more dubious, in my, in my opinion. Um, but the investors believed it, and they kept pumping money in. And I think, you know, the data scientists believed that it could be done, and the team believed it could be done. But ultimately, the evidence was never there. Um, I don't believe, and I will stand corrected if it's not if they have published, but I don't believe they've actually had any peer-reviewed publications on the actual efficacy or accuracy of, of, of the chatbot system. My involvement then turned into a, a regulatory one. The, the MHRA, who are the UK regulators for medical devices, uh, approached the company and said, did you know that you're building a, a medical device? Because if you are attempting to you know, diagnose a condition that, that is a medical device um, classification. And we didn't know. Um, so I was tasked with the job of, of getting regulatory approval. And this is how I you know, got into regulations in the first place. So I literally read the medical device regulations, all 360 pages of them, cover to cover, and came up with a plan of how we could do it. And the regulations at that time really weren't developed for software. And there was this massive loophole called the class one loophole that, that could be applied. So basically you could say, look, we're a low-risk device. If we, if we make our intended use very low-risk, we're just triaging patients. We're just providing an indication that maybe they should see a GP or maybe they should go to A&E. That's a triage decision. It's very low-risk. Um, so therefore, we can be a class one device. And in order to gain that certification, you have no regulatory scrutiny. You just fill in a declaration of conformity and say that you have complied with the regulations. Of course, I didn't want to do that. <laughs> I, I'm an ethical person. So I actually tried to build the, the, the technical file, the documentation, the quality management, um, the clinical investigation plans and everything that needs to be done. And I did that. And I put it in a big binded folder and handed in my resignation. And I left after about 12 months of starting that. Uh, I don't know what happened after that. I gather they, they had more regulatory people because I... I managed to convince the, the, the C-suite to give us a budget for regulatory, but I, I don't believe they ever got any any proper regulatory approvals, class 2A or above. And they certainly didn't get FDA approval. That was something that I was tasked at looking into, but it quickly became apparent that it was never going to be achievable. And then I moved on. I, I went and got proper artificial intelligence regulatory approved when I went to Cairo Medical and have since been doing so at Hardin. So I, I kind of learned the, the, the hard way how, how, how to do this stuff. But it comes to no surprise to me now, uh, seven, eight years later, that the whole thing has completely collapsed because you, you can't live off a, a pipe dream forever. And the other infamous health tech company that tried to do this was Theranos. They tried to tell their investors they had a product that worked and they, they didn't. Uh, Theranos was slightly more illegal in that they lied to the regulators as well, whereas Babylon actually just abused a loophole which was allowed at the time 
and Theranos, obviously, she's now been convicted of fraud as well as her partner. Um, I don't think that's going to happen in the Babylon case, though I don't think this is entirely the end of the Babylon story. I wouldn't be surprised if there are legal ramifications of some kind uh, in the future, but that's yet to be seen. But I think for now, it's come to an end. Uh, the, the, at least the AI part of it has come to an end. I, I gather GP at hand still exists in some form, as you say, owned by some of the clinicians. And I think a telemedicine service that provides GP appointments is a viable business model. Countless others have, have done that. And I, and I think that's, that's perfectly acceptable. I hope they learn not to try and claim that they've got AI uh, powering it all because they don't and you can't. No one's achieved that yet. So that's about the long and the short of it. Um, and to any listeners who who think you know that I'm biased because I'm an ex-disgruntled employee, I, I'm really not. So I went in there with, with high hopes and expectations and I saw the internal reality myself and I have endeavoured ever since then to try and do things the right way. That's a fairly outstanding rundown of how we got from there to here. Um, and as you say, I'm sure a lot has changed since since you left. And you know, I think it is probably testament to some of the great work by uh, by the employees since that, you know, the, the business was able to, uh, you know, stay where it was and get to where it was. Um, and ultimately, sad to see it's uh, ended this way. Um, I guess, I mean, I think one of the other things that's come up since the news broke is a thread by a Twitter user called Health Tech Insider from about five years ago. Uh, it's been uh, dug up, and it said essentially that this was, you know, this was when they were they're hailing all of the big successes, hailing all of the big valuations and raises. And this thread, essentially, this was this was inevitable because um, of nine reasons: unrealistic project scopes, lack of focus, huge expenditure, little revenue, team scaling too fast. Um, company were overpromising, which I think you've definitely covered. Lack of understanding of clinical safety, which I think you've touched upon as well. Um, low margin, non-scalable model. The tech wasn't mature enough. They raised too much money, and their big partnerships were signed too early. This sounds a lot like there's a lot of overlap with what what you're saying. I guess how come it's taken this long? Do you think um, for us to get to this point? It's a good question. I think it's it's a combination of the fact that internal employees do, don't really want to speak out, and that's true in, in any company. For most companies that anybody works for, you'll probably get in trouble if you try and speak out publicly and, and whistleblow. So there's probably a, some kind of fear in there. You know, people need jobs; they need to retain their, their employment, and it's, it, you do put your neck on the line if you if you come out and say these things. I think the other reason is that Babylon were quite aggressive as well. With any detractors, I know that they there was that argument with that that infamous Twitter user, Dr. Murphy, who turned out to be a, you know an NHS consultant, and he was correct the whole time. He he, he even though you might not agree with the, the methods that he employed on Twitter in calling the chat shot the chatbot a bad bot, um, he was right the whole time. Um, but he wasn't you know obviously employed by the company; he was external. So he, he but 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 the company you know, did attempt to, to muff, muzzle him slightly. I think when people have put literally hundreds of millions of, of dollars into something, people don't want to hear the bad mm. side. And I just really hope that this just shows to people, if you're, if you're an investor and you've got lots of money, you are still bound by science and facts. And whatever someone tells you, go and do that proper scientific 
due diligence. Do your regulatory due diligence. If someone's claiming something, just go and check if it's actually possible to get that approved. I see so many companies these days making outstanding claims that I know for a fact are years away from getting to market because there's all these other barriers that they have to get through. And the other thing that you touched on there was was scaling too quickly. I mean, Babylon was very proud at the time of, of, of claiming it was in a hyper-growth phase. In fact, you know, they, they would recommend everyone read this book. I can't remember the exact title, but it was about hyper-growth. Um, and I don't think that that really helped anything. Um, the deals they signed, often you do, there was a bell or a gong in the office which would ring every time someone signed a deal. And that was going off on a weekly basis, if not faster. And, you know, the clinical team that I was in was, was very removed from the business side, but, you know, you'd, you'd have chats with your colleagues across corridors and you'd think, well, how are they signing these deals with all these big players? We haven't built this thing yet. What, what have you promised them? Um, a lot of internal disappointment and disillusionment. And you only need to look on the website glassdoor.com for employee reviews um, and just have a scroll through that and go back several years and staff have been saying it for years. There's a real WeWork 2017 vibe to this, isn't there? The hyper-growth piece, growth at all costs, and then, oh, dear, what have we done? Um, and, yeah, I think some good, potentially some good comparisons to be to be made. Um, I, we, we'll talk about the sort of AI piece and sort of how it links into some of those sort of over-promising sides and, and what, it, what it actually means for patients a bit later on in the podcast when we uh, talk about how... Uh, AI is being used in some of the announcements that we've heard this week. But I guess final point is, uh, are EMED good, getting a good deal at $5,000? <laughs> I would say so. I think having a functioning uh, telemedicine GP service with dedicated clinicians, and I, and I know some of them on the team, they were there when I was there, um, and they're good people. I, I think they could probably make a, a success of it. And $5,000 sounds incredibly cheap. My question that just came out of this, and, and this is more directed to you, Dr. Hughes, is, so how can startups best talk about their use of AI? And obviously here I'm talking about startups that are well using AI, perhaps as like a USP to investors or the media without overclaiming and potentially making detrimental claims that come back to bite them. It's very simple, I think, in my view. It's just to be honest about the state of where you're at in your product development. I think you can claim something if you've proven it to have worked. And you've got to take the scientific approach. If you've published a peer-reviewed paper, if you've got a regulatory approval for something, then you can claim it. No one's going to argue against it. But I think if you're going to be making these claims without having gone through those, those evidence barriers, then you need to be, make it very clear that, to say that this is what we want to build. This is what we hope to build. And then you can talk about what all the potential benefits and upside might be if you get there. But just to be complacent about it and just pretend that it's already done is is a lie. Um, and in some ways, I guess that could be considered a fraud. Um, it's 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 sad to see it, it happen again and again and again. We've seen it with Theranos. Um, there are, there's other digital health tech unicorns that, that have failed for similar reasons. It shouldn't happen again. And if it does happen again, then we just haven't learned from it you can't as i said earlier in the podcast you can't get away from science and facts now you can have your opinions but you can't change people's facts and if you haven't got the science to back up your claims then you shouldn't be representing them as facts so i don't uh, 
touches on a nice point I wanted to come back to in, in sort of initial your initial breakdown of the Babylon thing, which was looking at those sort of bold claims of Babylon standing up at the, the Royal College and saying, you know, we're passing medical exams, AI passing medical exams now. Obviously, that was then, this is now, but we're definitely hearing those new stories on a almost weekly basis at this point of this AI is passing this, this AI is achieving that, this AI can beat you know, radiologists on identifying certain um, conditions or challenges or issues or anything on scans and everything like that. What's changed in that five years? Has anything changed in that five years? And it, I mean, it feels like these are a lot more, the, the stories we're hearing this year on this are a lot more based on proper studies, based on scientific methods, a lot more provable, a lot more tangible. Is that the case? Um, to an extent, yes, um, but there's some caveats. I, th- I think so. What has changed over the last sort of five years? Well, recently, last year, is is the sort of global recognition of large language models and foundational models to be able to learn from unstructured data in vast amounts, um, and somehow have this almost magical property to be able to to answer. Um, human language based questions um, and people are obviously trying to apply this to medicine um, and of course they are technically passing um, multiple choice question medical based tests um, the USMLEs and, and, and similar but the question is really not can they pass a medical licensing exam um, because that's the wrong test for these things unless you, your product is intended to pass exams, which is kind of a useless product because who cares? Um, so what? You've proven that your device is as good as a trainee junior doctor with no experience at answering exam questions. And how does that actually apply in the real world? Because doctors don't answer exam questions all day long for a job. That's not how medicine works. It's, it, I, I equate it to, to driving. When you, when you pass your driving test, theoretically, you've passed the, the driving test knowledge, but you don't sit there every day answering multiple choice questions about what a stop sign means or, or things like that. So you, you use that knowledge in aggregate in a day-to-day practice um, to, to help care for patients. Um, and large language models don't really have any of that capacity to do that. So I'm because of this sort of origin story from, from, from my experience at Babylon, I'm now inherently skeptical about claims and I, and, I, and I want to see people go beyond these almost toy tests of passing exams into actual real-world applications. Um, so the technology's changed. The claims, unfortunately, haven't. And I just think we just need to, be, need, we need to find better tests or better ways to assess the practical um, applications of this new um, type of artificial intelligence. Our second story is from Medical Device Network and is the story that Humor is tapping Google Cloud's generative AI tools for their digital health platform. So fresh off 501k class two uh, clearance for their disease agnostic platform, um, they're now considering how to bring in Google Google's MedPalm 2 technology uh, into their solution. This is one of two fairly, um, I guess, challenging stories uh, in the AI and healthcare side this week in that 
they're essentially speculative. There are two announcements, this one along with the story that HCA are also looking at Google Cloud's platform. They're talking about very much in the future, very much considering there are no timelines attached, there are no dates attached, and there's no, beyond the HCA uh, story, there's no real story about how it impacts patients or clinicians in this. So I guess rather than focus too heavily on the story, uh, stories themselves at least, um, let's talk about, you know, what is the next couple of years in AI? Are we going to keep seeing stories where people say they're considering something or they're thinking about doing something? And is there any impact that's going to come out of that? So it is an interesting uh, announcement. Uh, Humor are, are, are quite PR savvy, so they've obviously leapt onto this opportunity to, to create some more PR. But the impression I get is that actually I think Google have just opened this up to, to anybody who wanted to apply. And actually, if you read through who's applied, it's, it's several companies. It's, it's not just not just the one. Um, in regards to what they're actually going to do with this technology, well, it just sounds like to me in the press release, no one actually knows. They're going to test it in some capacity to see if it can do something. Fine, great, it's a PR announcement. Um, but you know this 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 doesn't sound like like anything to 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 write home about. What we would want to see is uh, some strong trial design, some strong testing, some strong published evidence that something works to to achieve some kind of health outcome. That that's when I, I will start to take notice. Fantastic. And from the sounds of the HCA story, where it's already been used in four hospitals as a pilot, and as, uh, and they've they've said it it's helped doctors to basically do admin, convert text to speech, record their medical notes faster, and that they're considering rolling it out to 75 new. Again, no timelines attached. There's nothing in there. I guess my question on this is, are we, uh, have we hit the end of relevant AI news headlines when, <laughs> when stories like this are being channeled out as PR opportunities, where there's no timelines, there's no impact attached, and you can genuinely put out an announcement saying you're thinking about it? Does this mean, is this what the next six to, six months to a year of AI stories is going to be, that we're thinking about doing stuff with AI, but we've not made any firm decisions and eventually it'll help, but right now it's it's just on the, on the agenda for us to think about? Yeah, and that belies the underlying fact that um, we're in a massive hype bubble in, in the macroeconomic term around AI in every sector, and people are just struggling to, to, to find use cases. We've got this, this hammer, we're looking for nails, Let's make an announcement. Um, I think it's the right tack to take. Uh, I think you know applying it to the operational and administrative tasks within a hospital uh, makes much more sense to try and take this into medical device territory um, and, and try and get it diagnosing or, or triaging patients. You know these large language models are, are language manipulators, and I think could potentially uh, be quite useful in doing those kind of background tasks. Um, you know, say a patient um, wants to schedule an appointment or something like that, or, or or you have voice recognition, which radiologists have been using for decades, by the way, um, which can then transcribe notes. Fair enough. I think that's fine. But really, is that really like all we're going to do with this stuff? So I think it is pertinent that, that people are, are trying other, other angles and tactics. But I think we're, we're getting, as you say, Hugh, quite rightly, probably a bit of PR overload now and people struggling to, to demonstrate actual practical applicability. So from your experience then, how long is this bubble going to last? When you get to that, okay, well, we've got the big thing, and you finally get to the point where people are saying it just to say it, and just to kind of associate themselves with the technology and that they're doing stuff, how long until it all goes away for a bit 
and someone comes through with another real development? It, it will depend. Um, the thing with, with the state of artificial intelligence at the moment is that you don't know when the next big breakthrough will come. It really depends on that. I, I think, you know, the markets can stay um, solvent longer than you can stay sane, I think is the saying. And at the moment, it's, they're still riding high. NVIDIA stock price is through the roof because every single AI company has to use their their, their units. Um, I think, you know, once you see that stock price ticking down, and I think um, more news, like, like you know, more Babylon's, more Theranos is happening, things might start to calm down a bit. I'm sounding like a grumpy old man, aren't I? There, I? I work with hundreds of startups. There are so many really good ideas out there and they're not hyping themselves up. They're coming with evidence, with regulatory approvals, and they will be here in a year or so. So the, the evidence is coming. The, the slope uh, of, of enlightenment out of Gartner's hype cycle is, is being climbed, but it's a tortoise and hare scenario. The hares have all reached the end of the race and they've failed. The tortoises are plodding along slowly and they are coming and they will get there. Yeah, I mean, I would say my only thought from reading this is sort of similar to what's been said in that it seems like an exciting headline. And then when you get down into exactly the details of what Humor are doing, uh, Gen I can generate draft responses to member inquiries and requests, automate repetitive tasks uh, to allow clinicians to focus on more complex tasks. I mean, it's sensible, but not exactly groundbreaking. So I think my question kind of here in terms of the hype is that do you think we're going to see large language models developed for anything other than sort of automated, repetitive tasks anytime soon? Certainly we're going to hear about people trying. (laughs) We're going to get more and more press releases. But I think it's going to be a long time before anything is clinically validated um, um, in in a practical aspect. Uh, These things just take time. You know, I, I remember when... Deep learning came out, so the image uh, perception task that I'm, I've, I've been trained on. That was about 2014, 2015. It took five years to get the first devices into market. And even now, they're, they're barely penetrating the, the, the market. People are demanding evidence. So these things take time. And with large language models, I still think the technology is quite early in, in its infancy. Um, everyone's waiting for GPT-5. It will come out at some point, and then everyone will get all excited again for a minute. I, I don't think we're at the end of, of, of this 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 train ride yet i just really want everyone just to learn from 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 what's been happening elsewhere um to try and avoid that hype and people who are investing into this space just stop throwing good money after bad good learnings to take away um i hope in a year from now you're going to come back on and talk to us about some really nice positive ai stories as well Oh, absolutely. I mean, we, we, I just got news this morning. We got a C mark for, for a company. I can't say who yet. Um, so that's going to be fantastic when it comes out. So our third and final story comes to us from gov.uk of all places. Uh, so that is the NHS Federated Data Platform, the importance of building bridges with the public. So with just a few months to go until the successful bidder of a major part of the NHS Federated Data Platform procurement is announced, the National Data Guardian, Dr. Nicola Byrne, has launched what can only be described as a thinly veiled criticism of the handling of the procurement and wider questions around public trust. In what she describes as an extended blog, um, and she's not wrong on that one, she reminds officials of public attitudes towards commercial involvement in the NHS, including that, frankly, the public tend to be behind commercial endeavours so long as specific conditions are met. 
So to, ha uh, to help calm some of the nerves that seem to have been inflamed by this process in a number of areas, she recommends officials take steps to show the likely, not simply hoped for value to patients in the NHS, the integrity of the decision-making process around the procurement, and to basically provide credible assurance about the relationship the NHS has with the supplier. It's a very detailed blog. Uh, there's some thorny questions addressed around the procurement that, let's face it, has been sensationalized, pulled apart, and at this point seems to be basically a given in terms of the likely winner. Uh, so to open this up to everyone, is this too little too late? Is there time before the procurement is announced to fix some of the damage, cool down the ill will that's come out of this process? We've been here before. I'm old enough to remember the National Programme for IT, commonly known as UMPFIT. In the, uh, I think in the 90s, maybe even earlier, where they tried to create a national spine, data spine, and they had, I, I believe they split the, the country uh, into five regions and gave each region to a different big corporate conglomerate to try and build this data spine. Um, and everyone built entirely different things, and nothing worked, and the whole thing fell apart. So we, we lost a lot of trust as uh, a nation with these kind of uh, systems. And I, I hope we learn from, from, from those mistakes. Um, but, but I do believe, and I've always said this, if we want to leverage NHS data for the benefit of patients in the most maximum way possible, we do need to collate and centrally federate all of our NHS data. The potential um, academic and scientific research that we can do on that, I think would be one of the greatest things this country could ever do. And you've got to remember, the UK is probably the only first world country in the world that can do this because we are the only people to have an ostensibly entirely state-run healthcare system. So I'm all for having some national um, communications network and data sharing. It just needs to be done properly and learn from the mistakes that, that, that were made all those decades ago. And from a population health management piece, as you say, this is going to be Essential. I mean, we only have to look at some of the kind of digital maturity scores, digital maturity ratings of ICSs, you know, the systems that trusts, some trusts have in place, some trusts definitely don't have in place to understand that this, this is a good thing. This, you know, like bringing this data together and it could be dramatically important um, for health outcomes in the UK, particularly given some of the things that the, uh, I think it was the Health Foundation have been saying about where we're going by 2040 when it comes to um, population health. So I think, yeah, this is a really important piece. I guess some of the things, I mean, uh, we're, we're obviously trying to be a bit more optimistic, but some of the things you said about uh, the the previous program falling apart, they don't, they don't fill me with confidence, Hugh. How do we avoid them? Uh, you just got to look at, uh, at the mistakes that were made. Um, you know, in this procurement process, we've got to make sure that we're really clear on what these vendors actually have to deliver. And we have to absolutely mandate um, interoperability right across the board. We have to try and get the fundamentals right. What are the coding languages going to be used? What are the platforms going to be used? Um, what data format is everything going to be stored in? Um, we really need to focus on all those fundamentals before we try and do anything sexy with, with, with the data. Um, get everything talking properly um, together. And then really the sky's the limit with what can be done uh, with this amount of data. Um, but yeah, it's, it, it's, a, it's a huge project. I, I certainly would not want to be in charge of this. It's going to be a massive headache. And you can see that, that there's always part of the population who see this as, as, as a privatization play of, of the NHS. But, but actually, if it's done properly, the potential to, to, to create data-driven technologies based off the research of this federated data is immense. 
but it has to be handled with care. And we have to ensure, and I think this was the point of that lengthy blog, really ensure that the public understand why it's being done, what the hope is, mm. um, and, and not to be seen just to be carving up the NHS data and, and giving it to companies, which is certainly not the impression that I'm getting. I wonder whether this public engagement project should have started a long time ago. It's, it's hard to say. I, I'm not privy to when they actually started talking about this. Um, I, I would say, though, that you can never expect to please 100% of the people 100% of the time. So as long as they're making best efforts, and I think the sentiment in this blog really really kind of explains the way they're thinking on this, it, it should be good enough. Um, and if it's got political backing and scientific backing, then it should go ahead. Um, I see no reason to the contrary. Brilliant. Well, um, if you are listening and you fundamentally disagree with everything we've said here, at Dr. Hugh Harvey on Twitter, that's the best way. Yes, please, please uh, tweet Hugh. Uh, he will respond. It will be great to watch. Well, thank you all for joining me, Dr. Hugh Harvey. It's been an absolute pleasure to have you on. Uh, thank you for making the time for us uh, just after the story broke, assuming you'll be on all of the major new news channels long before this actually gets published. So. Um, yeah, you were first. We're, we're going to mark that line in the sand. Indy, Holly, thanks for joining. You got the exclusive. Well done. Wonderful. Thank you all. That was the Health Tech Pigeon team analysing the Health Tech news so you don't have to. Join us next week and check out all the articles we've talked about, some of the best jobs and pods in health tech at healthtechpigeon.com.